0: So uh, I've got some notes for you there, once again. Uh, don't pass out, but yeah, we have notes. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and I do have them uh, hole-punched in case you want to keep them in, uh, um, in a book or whatever and be able to refer back to them again. And uh, this weekly reading is called Beshalach, which means "and he, uh, when he sent away. So it's when um, Pharaoh... Uh, sent e, uh, Israel out of Egypt. He's like, he's mad, he's sent them out, and, and they're, they're gone. Um, and so at the top of the page also, I've got uh, the passages there uh, for your reading and study. And so today, we're going to cover actually Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, through chapter 17, verse 16. And... John chapter 6, verses 15 through 71, and 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5. There's actually the added uh, reading there for you if you want to go look at it later today of Judges uh, chapter 4, um, uh, through uh, uh, verse 4 through chapter 5, verse 31. And so those are the readings <coughs> that we've had for the week. And um, so I just want to cover this. We'll, we'll fly through here uh, and make some notes as we look at this and, uh, and talk about this. So you can see there it says um, that this, this reading, <clears throat> let me say it this way before I get too deep into it. Uh, what we're going to be looking at is when Israel leaves, this is the crossing of the Red Sea. So this is when they're cro- <clears throat> in the process of leaving Egypt. Uh, The firstborn of Egypt has died and now we're uh, in the process of leaving Egypt. They're going to cross the Red Sea and then they're going to spend some time in the wilderness and everything that happens while they're in the wilderness. uh, So from that point uh, to the point of them being in the wilderness and Moses is going to hit the rock, it's going to split, water's going to come out, they're going to drink Uh, And so, I want to preface this because it's really cool, and this is why I'm going to mention some things, and I'm going to want you to highlight them and make some notes. Because when we get into the passage here in John chapter 6, there is a parallel that is uncanny between what Yeshua did when He, remember when He walked on the water? The story of Jesus walking on the water. Uh, And then he subsequently later, when he crosses the sea with them into Capernaum, begins to teach. And everything that he's saying and everything that he did is an absolute parallel to the story we're going to read here in Exodus. And it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So follow along with me here as we look at some of these passages So obviously, we're going to skim through here. We're going to hit the tops uh, because we can't cover every single verse. But starting in uh, chapter 13, verse 17, it says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt." So just for starters here, uh, this is when Pharaoh let the people go. And it's literally, it, it's like, it's when he sent them out. When he, he he's like, he's running them out. He's like, we don't want you here. You're, you're killing us. <clears throat> and then it says, God didn't lead them by the way of land to the Philistines, even though that direction would have been shorter. And the reason was, he was afraid that when they, left, if they went there too quickly, and they end up having a fight, they're going to get too scared and just simply want to go back. Why does he know that? Well, it's because he's outside of time and space. He knows everything. He's already experienced it. He knows every possible outcome, if you will, of the future. And so he literally doesn't take them the short route. He takes them the long route, and then he even takes them in a roundabout way. Let's keep looking in here. In Exodus 13, verse 20, it says, and they moved on from Sukkot and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. So this is where, once again, you have to use Scripture to interpret Scripture and try to figure out what is happening. If you go to the next verse I've got for you there in Numbers 33, verses 3 through 5, it says, they set out from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. We know that's what? That's the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we've already been told that Nisan or Abiv, it's now called Nisan, uh, is God said, this is going to be the first of the months for you. And so Passover happens on the 14th. Unleavened Bread starts on the 15th. And that's the day they left. And so he's saying it's it's their first month. It's the month of the birth of the nation of Israel. And they left on the 15th, on the day after the Passover. The people of Israel went out triumphantly, now watch this, in the sight of all the Egyptians. This becomes real important to understand what they say later. Do y'all have notes back there? Did y'all get the notes? Y'all got them? Okay. Uh, And it says... Uh, Okay, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians. Watch this. While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn. Whom the Lord had struck down among them. And, And then it says, and on their gods also the Lord executed judgment. We talked about this last week. These are not just. Plain idols. These are these are real gods, fallen entities that God has executed judgments upon. Uh, then it says in verse 5, so the people of Israel set out from Ramses and camped at Sukkot. So Sukkot is the first place they went to. And it says that they left from the city of Ramses. This is this statement. I'm just going to say this quickly because we've got a lot of real estate to cover. You have to remember, they've been in Egypt how long? 400 years? There's a little debate on the timing of when all that started, but 400 years? Um, And archaeologists and historians say, well, there's no way that this is correct, and the, the exodus didn't happen because of the timing from the city of Ramses and all that. Well, they're referring to the city of Ramses according to what it was called at the time of the writing of this. That's a little hint. We covered that when we, if you were here, when we watched the video uh, Patterns of Evidence, uh, which is where he spelled that out clearly on why that was wrong and why it's wrong to try to date everything on the writing of this, calling a city Ramses, when it was a city that had been in existence for a long time. Does that make sense? I'm going to have to leave that for a second because that's, that's just a little side note. You can chase that down later if you want. I just wanted you to be aware of that. But then I also want you to be aware that the first place that they went to was a place called Sukkot. I don't think that's by accident. I don't think there's anything in Scripture by accident. Um, we're going to have to just uh, go on. But what I want you to pay attention to is that when Israel leaves Egypt... <clears throat> There is a national funeral going on. Every single family in Egypt that's left behind is having a funeral. They're burying their firstborn. There's weeping and wailing that is unprecedented. The nation has been decimated. There isn't a green thing left. The hail and all the stuff that's happened, the locust, uh, the fire, I mean, everything that has happened has totally decimated this country. And now, think about this. I'm going to just throw out a figure. Assuming every family had 10 people, I'm sure that's not the case, but let's just say every family had 10 people. One-tenth of this nation is now dead overnight. It's one ten, it's, it's, and it's their firstborn, which is also saying that a massive number of their young workforce is now dead. And this is what Israel is watching as they're leaving. You have to keep that in mind because they're going to say something that is a little bit confusing unless you understand what it was they saw when they were leaving. Does that make sense? So you need to understand, these things are not in here to fill space. It's important. So let, let's go on. In Exodus 14, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Tell the people to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Heroeth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of baal Zephon." you shall encamp facing it by the sea. I put Strong's definition down there for you in your notes, just so that you could see this, that once again, the word Baal Zephon means the Lord of the north. God says, look, I want you now to take Israel back. You need to circle back around. I want to take you to this place. You're going to encamp in front of the sea in this specific area. There's going to be these mountains on either side. You're going to camp by the sea and in front of you is the Lord of the north, Baal, the God that ends up causing them so much trouble, ends up causing Israel so much trouble later on. And he says, you're to face this way and encamp right here. You just got to hold on to that, okay? And this is why, once again, and I've said this many times here, you know that the name of God is important, and it's not Lord. It's, and we now know uh, that the actual correct pronunciation of it is Yehovah, that um, uh, Nehemiah Gordon, which uh, he's not a believer, but he is an incredible linguistic guy, and he now has well over a thousand biblical manuscripts with the correct vowel pointing under, the, under the, the four letters for the name of God, yod He vav He. He also has more than 16 rabbis now verifying that this is correct and that the actual correct pronunciation of it is Yehovah. Um, and it's in your Bible nearly 7,000 times. So um, I'm just putting that there for you for your reference so that you'll have that. Look over here on this next page where I've got uh, Exodus 14 verses 11 through 14. This is where they say this, which you go, what are they talking about? So they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? That's why they said this. They're watching people starting to dig graves. They're watching people by the millions, if you will. The whole country is having a funeral. There's not a family that wasn't touched. These families also kicked them out. They're they're like, their child just died. Take the gold, take the silver, take our clothes, take our flocks, take anything, just get out of here. That's what they just witnessed. Now they're encamped, God takes them round about, puts them in front of the sea, puts them in front of Baal-Zaphon, puts them in a position where Pharaoh is behind them. They're trapped and Pharaoh is coming. And their response is, so there weren't enough graves in Egypt? Is that why you brought us out here? Does that now start to make a little more sense as to why they would say something so bizarre? At first, it just kind of sounds odd, but you have to remember what they were looking at. And then it says, um, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we can serve the Egyptians. It's what they said to him. Once again, again, Getting the people out of Egypt was one thing, but getting Egypt out of the people was a totally different story because they had been there 400 years and had grown accustomed to the status quo. As horrible as it was, they learned how to survive, and it's all they knew. Then it says, "...for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness." And Moses said to the people, fear not, you might want to underline that, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. I'm going to try to say what's actually in your Bible. Uh, see the salvation of Jehovah, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Yehovah will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Just zip it and watch. And God's going to deliver you. You jump down to verse 24. It says, And in the morning watch, Yehovah in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. A few things I want you to see here. You might want to underline this. It was in the morning watch that God um, looks down upon the Egyptian forces, and He's doing it out of the pillar of fire and the cloud, the pillar of cloud. Uh, When He tells Moses, raise up your staff, and the Red Sea parts, that happens at night. And they cross at night. It's in the morning watch that now Egypt is coming across, and while Israel walked across on dry land, Egypt comes across and it's wet. And their wheels become heavy in the mud, And God even causes the wheels of the chariots to start coming off and he throws them into confusion. And while they're out there, the Egyptians are like, we got to get out of here because God is fighting against us and fighting for the Israelites. Um, Well, the rest of the story is obviously Israel crosses, they cross safely and God lets all the waters fall down on the Egyptians, killing all of them. You move forward into Exodus 15 verses 1 through 3 and this is where you have the song of Moses. I included this in here just as a way of reminder because you know we just finished the book of Revelation and you remember there at the end that they were singing, these angels are singing what? They're singing two songs. They're singing the song of Moses and the song of of the Lord. Um, Well, this is where it comes from. I didn't put the whole thing in here. I just want you to see something. In these first three verses. It says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. To Yehovah. They sang it to God. Uh, and this is what they were singing. I will sing to Yehovah for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. Yehovah is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. That would really say this is my Elohim. This is my Elohim and I will praise him. My father's Elohim and I will exalt him. Yehovah is a man of war. Yehovah is his name. You see where it becomes kind of important to try to remember what the name actually is instead of Baal? which is the Lord. That's not His name. The Lord is a title. It's nonsensical, right? All I ask is that we use our brain and be realistic. To say that His name is a title is nonsensical. His name isn't a title. He has a lot of titles, but He's got a specific name that He's got in your Bible nearly 7,000 times. I think we should kind of know what it is. Um, Anyhow, I wanted you to see that just in that close proximity, the way it's stated, the way the song is and the way it actually should be read in the original Um, and that it's the song of Moses. I just had that in there because of what we just studied. If you keep going in Exodus 15, 24, it says, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, what are we going to drink? They just crossed the Red Sea. It was a pile of water on each side like a wall. They're saying this, watch this, with a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of a cloud by day and the angel of God there with them. They just saw the Egyptian army slaughtered. It said that that morning when the waters came down, they were looking at the corpses washing up on the shore. Shortly thereafter, about three days later, they're running out of water. They're not completely out yet, but they're running out. And what do they do? They start grumbling against Moses. All of this, you're going to see this in just a minute when we get into the book of John. It's absolutely fascinating. He says, so what are we going to drink? You look ahead at verse 25 and 26, it says, And he cried, Moses cries to Yahweh, And it says, Yahweh showed him a log. In some of your translations, that's what it'll say. Or it'll say a, a tree. And he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. You might want to underline that. And you might want to jot down there that what it's really saying is that he saw a tree. And Moses at least took the tree or part of it and he threw it in the water. And the water became sweet. And then... Continue on, it says, There Yahweh made for them a statute and a rule, and there He tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your Elohim, and do what is right in His eyes, and give ear to His commandments, <clears throat> and keep His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh your healer. Now, where are they when He says this? They're out in the wilderness on the other side of the sea, right? Egypt's already been decimated. He's saying, if you'll follow me, I won't put any of that other junk I just put on Egypt on you. If you'll just do what I'm telling you and do what pleases me. Does that make sense? But then I want you to notice. uh, Well. Let's just go on. Uh, I, I've already told you, because I don't want to get ahead of myself, that what he saw was this tree that he threw in the water um, and, and made it, made it sweet. I, when I was doing my reading, let me go ahead and say this part. <clears throat> the debate was, and the debate is among some theologians, uh, as to was the water really bitter or were they? Because they're grumbling. They grumble all the way through the wilderness. They're grumbling, and they're grumbling because they don't have any water, and when they get there, they say they, they can't drink it, that it's bitter, and that Moses takes a tree and throws it in there and tells them, and it becomes sweet where they can drink it, and some are saying that what was really the problem was that the people were bitter, and they didn't trust Moses. This wasn't some kind of magical thing that he did when he threw a tree in there and changed it from poisonous water to water that they could drink that the real issue was their hearts were bitter. I just want you to pay attention to that. So the question is, you know, was the water bitter or were their hearts bitter? It's obvious their hearts were, but let's go on. And we get into chapter 16. It says, they set out from Elim and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month. So now it's been another month. It's been another 30 days. After they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of Yehovah in the land of Egypt. They're, now they're saying, we'd have been better off if God had just killed us while we were in Egypt. When, watch this. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full... You have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. I'm just going to ask you to maybe highlight or circle meat pots, bread to the full, and they're going to die with hunger. Just for a reference. And so some have said, you know, well, what are the meat pots? Well, it's where they cooked their meat. It's really just that simple. Uh like a crock pot that wasn't electric. Uh, you know. It's just the pots that they cooked their meat in because they're saying, we have no meat. We, have, we don't have any bread. The matzah is starting to run out, in other words, that they had brought with them. The unleavened bread is running out. And we're like, man, it would have been better to bend back in Egypt serving the Egyptians and die by the hand of God Almighty because at least we had meat to eat to the full, Bread to eat to the full. We had plenty to drink. The water wasn't bitter. Maybe the surface was bitter, but at least we could get fat. Pretty much what they're saying. At least they had plenty to eat. You get into verse 4. It says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when the peep, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So he says, I'm about to rain down for you bread from heaven. And I'm doing this in such a way that I'm going to test them to see if they'll really follow me according to what I say. And we know that one of the things he tells them is that you're to go out, you're to gather this manna every day, except on the sixth day, I'm going to send you twice as much. And you're to gather twice as much, but don't gather it on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, because that's to be a day of rest. If you, and, and if you gather too much in the rest of the part of the week, it's going to rot and have worms in it. But if you do it on the sixth day, it will not rot, and there'll be plenty for you on the seventh day, on that Sabbath day. And he says, I'm gonna do this to test them to see if they're really gonna walk according to what I say or not. <clears throat> and then in verse 11, it says, And Yahweh said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Here it is again. It's in here a lot, and I want you to see that. I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel say to them, You know what? Tonight you're gonna to eat some meat. <laughs> He says, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh your Elohim. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. So <clears throat> um, they... They get up and they find quail. There's so many quail running around that you can't see the ground pretty much. And it says that they were just eating it, you know, until they just, they couldn't eat anymore. Uh, and they had plenty of bread to eat because God was giving it to them. You jump down into verse, and into chapter 17, verses 6 and 7. Um, And it says, Behold, because now they're grumbling again because they don't have any water. This is uh, later on. And so it says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. This is God speaking to Moses. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of all the elders. And he came... And he called the name of the place Masa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested Yehovah by saying, is Yehovah among us or not? Now, I pulled up this picture because this is an actual place in the Sinai wilderness. And there's a rock <clears throat> that they have found that is split in the middle. Now, if you... Go home and investigate this. There's videos on it and stuff, but they've done some analysis of this area. And here's what's fascinating. There is massive um, erosion from the top up there down through this area, and it is obvious that it is water erosion. I used this particular photo so that you could see the size of the man here in relationship to the size of this rock, and this is a real rock. And it's well documented that it's out there. And they have found this rock that it's split in the middle. And it is massively eroded. And they say that there's no way to doubt because we know the difference between wind and water erosion. It's easy to see. And that all the rocks coming down from here uh, and out of this area is water erosion. A little bit farther down, there's an area where you can see where they literally moved a massive rock to try to pull the water up so that they could create, if you will, a type of a dam to stop it so that they could try to capture as much as they could to live off of. And this is out in a wilderness. There's nothing out here. There's nothing there. I find that fascinating, don't you? I actually find it pretty cool that we're finding all this stuff. And you're going, it, this is not a metaphor. This stuff really happened. Um, there's a couple of things that hit me this morning. Um, I love how God does that. So I've got a couple of notes for you that are not... And Matt doesn't have them. They're not on the slides. They're not on your notes. But you really need to jot these down. Because uh, in Matthew 27, verse 51... In Matthew, just jot it down there by, by that verse there in Exodus 17, verses 6 through 7. In Matthew 27, verse 51, it says that when Jesus died, what happened? The rocks split. You think that was by accident? No, it's not by accident. Why? Because God is really big into symbolism. You know why? We're slow and hard-hearted, and stiff-necked, and rebellious. And we've got to be told over and over and over and over again. Uh, The rocks split when Jesus died. There's another verse I want you to jot down and you can go look at again later. It's in Zechariah 14 verse 4. Because in Zechariah 14, verse 4, it talks about when when Yeshua is coming back, when the Messiah is coming back, when God comes back, He's going to do what? He's going to stand on the Mount Olives. And what's going to happen with the Mount Olives? It's going to split. And there's going to be a deep valley caused when the Mount of Olives splits with God standing on it. That's supposed to happen in the future. It also talks about, I didn't write this down, but it just came to my mind, that water is going to come out of Mount Zion, which is right across. I mean, it's it's a it's just a short walk from the Mount of Olives to the Temple Mount, there at Mount Zion. And it says that there's going to be water coming out of it. Well, when you go back to this Exodus 17, verses 6 and 7, what is it that God says? I'm gonna stand on this rock. I'm gonna be standing on it, and you're to walk up and hit it, and when you do, it's gonna split open, and water's gonna flow out of it. Folks, he's doing that once again to just continually paint a picture that everything you're seeing is gonna happen again. And everything you're seeing here on a small scale will happen again on a global scale, on a massive scale. And everything that you're seeing me do now, I'm going to do it again. It's fascinating. Um, All right, let's jump into the New Testament here real quick, and I'm going to try to run through here. And I want you to now start seeing this parallel between what we just looked at here in Exodus to the story of Jesus walking on water, the walking on water story, and they end up over in Capernaum, and then he begins to teach and watch all these incredible parallels. So starting in, in John 6, verse 15, it says, Perceiving that they were about to take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So now we've got it's nighttime It's it's going to become nighttime, uh, and the crowd is trying to make Jesus the physical king. It has nothing to do with him being, quote-unquote, the Messiah, and doing what God wants, and they're going to try to take him by force. What is it that Jesus wants to do? He doesn't want to become just their earthly king in an earthly kingdom. He's going to be crowned king of kings. King of all the, watch this, Baals. Yes. And he's there by the sea. So there's force happening and Jesus goes, no, not going to happen that way. And as a matter of fact, watch this. I'm going to retreat. And then my people are going to be forced to do something uncomfortable. It's amazing. Let's keep looking at this. So it says in verse 16 when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. When did Israel cross the sea? At night. So when evening came, the disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea became what? Rough because of what? A strong wind. How did God part the Red Sea? With a strong wind. A strong easterly wind. Let's continue on. Uh, Verses 19 through 21. When they had rowed about three uh, or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea coming near the boat. That'll get anybody's attention. Amen? And especially because the sea had become rough. They were scared by this time. When you read all the gospel accounts, it shows us that they were terrified and they were fishermen. They were like, we're fixing to die. This was not just a small storm. I've been on Lake Ray Hubbard before when a storm comes out. uh, And typically uh, when it hits, uh, you know, really bad The causeway that goes all the way across will break the wind, you know. Uh, Anybody spend any time on Lake Ray Hubbard? Um, And I was out there when I was about 17 with uh, my good friend in his dad's bass boat, uh, real heavy, steering up front bass boat. It was just the two of us, two teenagers. We're out there fishing all day and skiing and cutting up and, you know, acting like idiots. And a storm comes up uh, out of the south. We were on the north side. All of a sudden we come around underneath the bridge on the far side of the lake, this side of the lake. And uh, we turned back around and went back. Because we had put the boat in at Dalrock. And so uh, the waves were high. And was blowing hard, and we we debated. We said, "Okay, we could park the boat over here, cross the lake, cross the highway by foot, try to get the truck, drive around." We went, and we're gonna put the boat in where and you know we all. So the two of us, because we're geniuses and we're 17 years old, we just said, "Ah, let's just go for it," you know. So we go around, and he put me to driving because he was bigger than me, and I weighed less, and so I was sitting on the front of the boat, you know, with the stick steering. And about every second wave, it, because the waves were so high, uh, and this was in about 71, I think, 72, maybe 72, uh, 70, somewhere in there. Anyhow, so these boats were heavy, <clears throat> and uh, about every second wave, I was literally having to go... <sighs> You know, because they were just coming straight over the boat and hitting me right in the face. And I turned around and Doug is back there because we didn't have a bilge pump. He's got a big coffee can doing this, you know, trying to get the water out. And I'm trying to not hit the rocks. And the whole time I'm thinking, we could die out here. You know, we could die out here. But that is nothing compared to what these men were putting up with. These were seasoned fishermen, and they were afraid they were about to die. Here it says, uh, if we continue reading, it says, they were frightened and he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Anybody ever see that before? He gets in the boat, they don't continue rowing. He gets in the boat and all of a sudden they're like, how do we get over here? This says Im- immediately they crossed. In other words, watch this. They crossed the water miraculously. And God was over the power of the water. We're just going to continue on because I've got a list for you at the back of uh, the last page. Let's, let's continue on. So now they're over on the other side. The crowds are wondering, how'd you get over here? Because we saw him get in the boat. and We saw that you weren't in the boat. And now you're over here and you're all over here together and you didn't get in a boat. So they're curious, how did you cross the water without a boat? How did you get here? So the crossing, their understanding was miraculous. And they're questioning him and talking to him in this teaching. So in verse 26, it says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, referring back to feeding the 5,000. You're not here because you saw signs. You're not here because you're seeing miracles. You're not even here because you really want to know spiritual truth. You're here only because you filled your bellies. Does that sound like somebody else we just looked at? They saw signs. They saw saw a miracle. They're even wondering about how he got over there. But all they really want is food. And then he tells them, he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. This is the challenge. (laughs) You need to to stop focusing on just filling your belly because you're going to get hungry again. You need to be more focused on Chasing after food that leads to eternal life, that actually satisfies. It says, which the Son of Man will give to you, and on Him God the Father has set His seal. Let's continue looking on in His teaching here. In verse 32, it says, then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Here's the connection between this story and this event to the parting of the Red Sea and what we just read. Uh, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now he's starting to bring it down and say that he's the bread of heaven. He's the manna. He's the what is it? That's what manna means. They didn't know what to call it. So they called it manna, which means what or what is it? In verse 35, he says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, now watch this, whoever comes to me will not hunger. Remember what the Israelites said? We're going to die of hunger out here. We should have been back in Egypt. At least we wouldn't have been dying of hunger. And then he says, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's an interesting statement that he puts this in here. Because nowhere in here is He really talking about water, except for the fact that He crossed the water. Why? Because this is God. This is Yeshua who was there at the parting of the Red Sea. He understands the parallel, and that's what He's trying to get us to see. In John 6, this last part of this section here, and then we're going to tie this together, It says, Jesus answered them. And look at what he says, because they were grumbling because he said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and this is how you're going to live. And then they're grumbling going, how in the world is this guy going to do this? He's talking about cannibalism, pretty much. And so they're grumbling among themselves. It almost makes me wonder if that's not why Jesus said it the way he said it, so that they would grumble so they could be part of the picture. It's Jesus he goes, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. He's talking about himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has meat his physical fleshly body do you remember when they said meat pots they wanted meat they wanted bread and they wanted water Jesus right here is saying I'm giving you all three of those and I am the manna I'm the water that came out of the rock and my flesh is what's going to bring you salvation which you said in the wilderness that that's all you wanted The problem is what you wanted was what was worldly. What I'm giving you is from heaven that will give you eternal life. Now, turn over to the last page. I tried to pull all this together so you can see this parallel, which I think is absolutely beautiful. So at the very beginning, we saw that Israel was hemmed in by the water in the wilderness and that Baal Zavon was across from them. Yeshua leaves because they wanted to take him by force and declare him king, yet his goal is to be crowned king over all the kings, meaning the Baals, the other gods, which is why God said you're to camp here and camp right across this because this is the issue. He's not just giving them a, 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 a geographical location just for the fun of it. It had a particular name and he wanted it for them to be right across from that for that reason to show them that he's God and Baal isn't. Let's go on. Israel, the next one is that Israel leaves uh, through the water at night and it was troubled by a parting, by the parted by the, and it was parted by the wind. Yeshua walks on the, what? Troubled waters. And he does it at night and they find themselves immediately on the other shore. It was troubled because of a great wind. It's a direct parallel. And the next one, Israel saw signs and still did not truly believe in God or call upon Jehovah in faith. That's what he wanted. They saw all these signs and he said, I'm just testing you to see if you'll actually follow me and do what I said because I'm God. I'm just like, I just brought you out of Egypt. Are you kidding me? When Egypt was in darkness, you had light. When the hail came, it didn't fall on you. When the, the locusts and stuff came, they didn't come on you. When the firstborn died, I passed over you. When I parted the waters, you walked on dry land, they walked on wet land. You came across safely, I killed them. I gave you light by the pillar of fire And gave you direction with the pillar of the cloud. And when I stopped Egypt. I let it give them darkness. But you had light. The list goes on and on and on. Everything he was doing. And they're like. All we really want is food and water. You see they really didn't trust God. And yet that is. All that God has ever wanted. Was that we would trust him. And believe in Him in faith. And if we did that, He'd give us everything else we needed. Um, Look at this. uh, The next one. Okay, they saw signs they didn't really truly believe in God. Yeshua performed the miracles and yet the people simply wanted food to eat and fill their bellies. It's the exact same parallel. Uh, The next one. Israel grumbled that they wanted bread and water and meat. Yeshua tells the crowd that He is the bread from heaven, living water, and that His body was given that the world might have eternal life. It's a direct parallel. The next one, Israel comes across bitter water that reflected the bitterness of their hearts, and Moses puts a tree into the bitter water to make it sweet. Notice also that, I didn't bring this out, but they were in the what? The wilderness of sin. (laughs) They're in the wilderness of sin when this happens. Yeshua dies on a tree to make the bitter, make our bitter lives in bondage a sweet. Uh, of sweet, once we drink of or take in His sacrifice, the picture of the tree is a picture of the cross, and it's a picture of the cross making our lives sweet and whatever we take in healthy once that happens. Which is what Jesus is here saying. I'm the bread of life. I'm going to offer my life, my body, so that the world can live. And where is he going to offer it? On a tree. To get us what? Out of our wilderness of sin. And out of our bitterness of heart. (laughs) To give us a new life in him. The last one, Israel simply wanted physical food. They only wanted to survive and food, and Yahweh wanted to give them uh, Himself. Yeshua states that salvation comes from believing in Him. Now, here's what I want you to see as we tie all this together, is this last passage is in here in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 5. Here, the Apostle Paul is relating this once again back to this event. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed what? Through the sea. He's talking about the wilderness. He's talking about the parting of the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Why would he say that? Because the cloud and the pillar of fire was there guarding their way, keeping Egypt out while Israel passed through. Once Israel was safe, God removed that, allowed Egypt to enter in, and then by morning says, okay, that's it, and lets the waters come down on them. So that it says they were baptized in the water and the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ was the Messiah. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And why were they overthrown in the wilderness? Because they kept their eyes focused only on the temporal. Only on the temporary. And they could not see the big picture. They couldn't see... That the God that brought them out was supreme over all the other gods. They fought this the whole time through the wilderness. If you'll pull up that last picture again of the rock. Do I have it there at the very end? Or you might have to go back to the middle. He's trying to tell them. He says, look, this water came out of the rock. And the rock followed them all through the wilderness. And the rock was what? Yeshua. He tells them that they're going to go through the wilderness. We'll get there. They're going to go through the wilderness and there's going to be an angel there. And that this angel, they are to listen to everything he says during their wilderness travels, do what he says and follow him. And he says, because my name is in him. Here the Apostle Paul is also telling us, and we we can chase this, we'll chase it later. But he's telling us, the one that was there following them throughout the wilderness and giving them water and giving them life and is the bread of heaven, the manna. He's literally the living water. He's the bread from heaven. He's the life. He's the direction. He's the, the rules that show them how to live their lives so that they would please God, everything. Who was it? Yeshua is Christ, the Messiah. And Christ here, when he has this opportunity and he sees, and he's outside of time and space, right? He knows everything that's going to happen. And so why did he walk on the water? Folks, he didn't walk on the water just to prove he's the Messiah. Did it prove he was, was one of the proofs? But he wasn't just doing a miracle to go, hey, hey, hey. Song and dance. I'm really God. I can do something other people can't. That's why they're like after after he's, he's doing all this, and he says I'm the bread from heaven, and I'm you know all this stuff. And they, what do they say to him? We, you have to go read the whole passage. They say, show us a sign. Yeah, show us a, do another miracle. They're just they hadn't changed. We haven't changed. We haven't changed. The reason I'm saying that is that when the Antichrist shows up, he does all these miracles, a lot of people, be, they're going to be amazed. Oh, wow, look at this supernatural event. This must be real. We're more impressed with a supernatural event than we are impressed with the Word of God and Jesus dying for our sins and living within us and Him becoming our source for life And everything we're more impressed with the show that's why Jesus said look you need to be working for you need to desire the food that brings eternal life and not just the bread that fills your belly can I give you more physical food of course I can just fed 5,000 with a kid's lunch that's nothing that's, not, that's child's play to God. You're out here in the wilderness. There's nothing out there. Oh, you need water? Well, guess what? I can make it come out of a dry rock. Oh, you want meat? No problem. I'll give you so much it's going to be coming out of your nose. I'm going to cover, I'll cover, the, it's going to cover the ground with quail. They're just going to go out there picking them up. That's crazy. Oh, you want bread? Well, how about if I give you some out of heaven? And it's going to be so odd, you're not going to know what to call it. Matter of fact, that's what you're going to call it, manna. What? He said it tasted like coriander seed, and they made everything out of it. And they ate it out there in the wilderness for 40 years. He said, I can give you all that. That's nothing. That is nothing. I've said this before. You remember, we'll get there later, but you remember when Joshua is bringing them into the promised land? And that's when he says, choose you this day whom you will serve. If God is God, serve him. How long are you going to waffle between two choices? Are you going to continue? Watch it. Are you going to continue serving the idols of your fathers? He's talking to the people that came through the wilderness. And that's when he says, but as for me in my house, I'm going to serve the Lord. That's the challenge. 40 years in the wilderness, they're still serving idols. We're no different or any better. We focus way too much on temporal things instead of focusing on God. And here's this beautiful picture of our Savior going, you know what? It happened once and I was there when I took them across the Red Sea. Now I'm going to do it again here physically and I'm going to show them that I was there and it's still the same story. I love you. I'm going to provide for your salvation and here's all I want. I just want you to love me and trust me and call upon my name and seek me with all your heart and you'll find me and you'll have everything you need. But if all you care about is food, water, and meat probably going to die in the wilderness. If all you care about is just earthly things you're not seeing the big picture. You're not understanding that I love you and I crossed eternity to die on a cross for you so that you could have a life in me with me. I didn't come here just to give you a good physical life on this earth. I didn't come here just so that you could learn how to get along with your family. I didn't come here and die on the cross just so that you could be healthy, wealthy, and wise. I didn't come and die on the cross so that you could learn these secret prayers and get all kinds of goodies from God. I came here and died on the cross so that you could have a life with me and I would give you everything that you ever thought you needed and more when you trusted me more than you wanted to fill your belly. That's the beautiful story of the cross. That's the beautiful story of God all through Scripture of what He's trying to show us. He goes, I want you to be with me. I want you to be a part of my kingdom. I want you to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want you to search for me with all your heart and you'll find me. And when you find me, you're going to find life. You're going to find contentment. You're going to find purpose, direction, guidance you're going to find the abundant life you've been looking for. But if you're looking for abundance in things and think that's going to bring you the abundant life, you're focused on the wrong thing. If you'll focus on me, then it's going to change your heart. Then therefore you won't be bitter in the wilderness of sin. You'll have your bitter heart turn to something that's sweet that can give life instead of sucking the life out of everything around you which is exactly what happened with the people of Israel God takes them I'm getting ahead of myself but God takes them out there and he says now I want you to kill the giants he's like they're like no we ain't doing that because those giants will eat our kids pretty much what they said and then God goes no problem you still don't trust me So you're going to die in the wilderness, and your children that you think will be their food is going to kill the giants. Oh, no, 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 we'll go. Not too late. He just wants us to trust Him, and that's why He was saying all that in here. I think it's a beautiful story. I think it's awesome how much God loves us and how much Jesus keeps repeating and showing us how much God loves us and how much He has done to show us that this life that's awesome is in Him. And it's found right there in our Bible. It's found right there in His Word. And He lived it out. This is another little story where you can see that everything that Jesus did and everything that He said and where He was, wasn't by accident. Nothing He did was by accident. Nothing is haphazard. Nothing is happenstance. He's not just like, you know, I think I can make this work. He did everything specifically to show us that God is true to His Word and that everything that did happen, what will happen. That's why God said, I'm going to show you who I am because only I can tell you the end of the matter from the very beginning. And what has happened will happen. And if you will study what has happened, you'll be better prepared for what will happen and what has happened is picturing what I did for you on the cross and then following through with that how I'm going to end up everything leading us into eternity it's just this big picture where he's showing us over and over and over again if we'll stop making it too complicated and focusing on what the wrong things does that make more sense man he loves you Loves you so much that he crossed eternity and spent everything in his treasury. Everything. So that you and I can have a life with him and be saved. So that we could have this abundant life. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and what? Have it more abundantly. And in him is life and life everlasting. It's not in your things. It's not in our stuff. It's not in our understanding. It's not in our belief system. It's how we're applying what we say we believe. And quite often, too often in our lives, those things usually don't line up. Because we know what we should believe, but our actions usually say what we truly believe. We know we should believe in God. We know that we should trust in God. But at the same time, we have a tendency to trust more in our own efforts in our own thought process, our own skills, instead of really trusting in God. And that's why God's like, I'm probably going to take you into the wilderness and I'm going to let you get hungry and I'm going to let you get thirsty and I'm going to let you long for the things that you think are going to bring you life so that you'll learn you need to trust in me. And if you'll trust in me, I'll give you everything that you ever wanted. If you'll really trust me, only two adults out of this crowd above the age of 20 Enter into the promised land, and it's not even Moses. Caleb and Joshua. Watch this, and we'll close. Caleb wasn't an Israelite. Yeah. So you got Jew and Gentile are the two that enter into the promised land. Uh, You have to get into that. Anyways, fascinating, fascinating.